disciplining myself to engage fully the will of God. Now see, that's more fun. That's more of an adventure. Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. If you're watching the video version of this podcast, you're seeing something very new. You see me with a background, but you also see Bishop Barron in a new studio with a new big background. Uh, Bishop Barron, welcome to the new revamped version of the Word on Fire show. Yeah, I'm excited about it. It's uh, it's cool, huh? You look great and uh, we have new equipment and lighting and all kinds of good things. Bishop, before we get into today's topic, I wanted to uh, maybe update everybody on a recent trip you took down to Arizona. You met with a close priest friend of yours to have a little bit of rest and play a little bit of golf. How'd that go? It's good. I was just back from the Ad Limina visit. So that was a 10-day visit to Rome, which was, it was wonderful. We talked about it last time, but it was also, you know, kind of draining. So I just spent three days down in the Phoenix area with Father John Muir, who's a great friend of mine, former student of mine. And John is a is a scratch golfer, so we just spent you know three kind of intense days playing golf. So I'm just back from that trip. Well, today I want to talk about an ancient philosophy that has gotten new legs under it and is experiencing some sort of a revival, especially among young tech-minded people, especially in Silicon Valley, out close to where you are. And that's Stoicism. Stoicism. Just a quick uh, background on what's going on and why it's taking off. It's been profiled in several major newspapers and magazines. For example, the New York Times had a big article recently titled Ryan Holiday Sells Stoicism as a Life Hack Without Apology. I'll get to Ryan Holiday in a second. The Quartz publication says Silicon Valley tech workers are using an ancient philosophy designed for Greek slaves as a life hack. And Wired magazine, probably the most popular tech periodical in the world, says uh, all that's good and bad about Silicon Valley's Stoicism fad. So Stoicism's kind of having this cultural moment. There's a lot of things that explain why it's become suddenly popular. We'll get into some of them. Uh, but one of the leading figures is this man named Ryan Holiday. He's a young guy. I think he's in his mid-30s or so. But he's authored several best-selling books that popularize Stoicism, books titled The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the enemy, and he's got a bunch of little daily devotionals promoting Stoic, uh, Stoic philosophers. Um, now, colloquially, I think when people hear the word Stoicism, they think a Stoic is someone who just represses their feelings. They show no passion, uh, they, they shun pain, they shun pleasure, they shun grief, they shun joy, but Stoicism has, I think, a richer background, a richer history. Maybe you can talk a little bit about Stoicism in the ancient world. Well, you're right. It's one of the leading philosophies in the ancient world. In the wake of the sort of golden period of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, we're talking maybe a hundred years or so after that, uh, Zeno, the founder, not Zeno of Zeno's paradoxes, who's a much earlier figure, but uh, Stoicism from Stoa just means the porch. They used to gather at this porch on the Agora in Athens. Um, there's a metaphysical side to Stoicism in the ancient world. You know, I'd say a sense of, um, of fate or the reasonability of nature, that things are as they ought to be, and the challenge is to adjust our own sort of passions and feelings and emotions to be in line with those great objectivities. So the Stoics, based on their metaphysics, had a kind of ethical theory. 
that a lot of our suffering comes from false expectations, from exaggerated emotions and feelings. If we can align ourselves, our logos, our reason, with the logos that's out there in the world, the, you know, sort of nature, the way things are, then we'll come to a sort of peace. They're, they're in line in a way there with the classical tradition of Plato and Aristotle looking for what Aristotle called eudaimonia, which just means happiness. Their account is a lot of our unhappiness comes from unrealistic, uh, exaggerated expectations. If we can change those, we can find an equilibrium. You know, there's an old saying, this from years ago, that you, know, you have two options. One is you could carpet the entire world. The other is you put two little carpets on your feet, put two little slippers, so that you change something in you that enables you to make your way through a difficult world. And that's kind of a stoic um, perspective. So there is a, a metaphysical side, there's an ethical side. Think of someone like the Emperor Marcus Aurelius. I mean, one of the remarkable people in uh, Western history, not only this extremely successful military and political figure, but also a philosopher of a pretty high order. He represents Stoicism, so now in the uh, second century AD. Um, Seneca is another major figure there. So some, some key players who are trying to help the people of their time to find equilibrium. And as you suggest, and I'm glad you told me about it, I didn't quite realize how sort of in vogue this was, but how a lot of people today are trying to find equilibrium uh, through it. We'll talk in a little bit about the overlap, the similarities between Christianity and Stoicism, because there is a lot. There's a lot that I think Christians and Stoics share in common. But first, I want to spend a little bit of time exploring why it's become in vogue, why this 21st century renaissance of Stoicism, again, there's been a lot written on this, a lot analyzed. Uh, it seems that there are a few ideas floating to the top about why it's experiencing this resurgence. So first of all, there's a lot of young people, especially young men, who have become disenchanted with traditional religion, but they're still looking for some sort of organizing philosophy for their life. And, and Stoicism kind of fits that bill. Here's a quote from one of the leading proponents of Stoicism, Massimo Pigliucci, he's a philosophy professor. He says, there's something very appealing for me as a non-religious person in the idea of an ecumenical philosophy, one that can share goals and at least some general attitudes with other major ethical traditions across the world. Do you see that, that like when Christianity sort of goes off the radar for a lot of young people, they look at all the other prevailing philosophies and Stoicism seems like a happy compromise? Yeah, I'll say a couple things there. One is to quote uh, one of my intellectual heroes, uh, Cardinal George, that the, the revival of philosophy is a very important thing for our time. He felt that the science-religion debate was too starkly stated. There's a middle position, namely philosophy. When you tell people it all comes down to science, something in the soul is going to rebel against that because there are needs that we have, aspirations we have that can't be met by scientific knowledge. And so the revival of the philosophical traditions doesn't really surprise me, given the, the decline in traditional religion. Second observation is, um, maybe even you sensed it in my brief description there of Stoicism, there are important points of contact between Stoicism in the West and certain forms of Eastern philosophy. Think of Buddhism especially, a kind of detachment, a sort of Zen calm that comes from you know, a certain control over the self and its passions. So I think that's the point he was making there. There's an ecumenical quality to it. 
And can we find, he probably would say, a, a general universal kind of philosophy even as the religious um, impulses have faded? Now, I think we can very ardently defend classical religion too, but, but given our time, I understand why they might feel this way. Many observers have pointed out that you had the whole self-help phenomenon of the 80s and the 90s, lots of books and lots of ink spilled on that, but then that's kind of evolved into this emphasis on mindfulness and self-awareness and the inward turn, and Stoicism majors in all of those things. It's all about looking in on yourself and uh, configuring your interior life to respond to the given reality instead of looking outward, say, to a god or to a religious faith. Do you think that's part of its appeal too, is that it's, it's an inward-focused philosophy? Right. That's one of the uh, basic uh, impulses of the Stoics, is we can't really control much of what's out there in the world. The world is going to be itself, and it, it's good and it's bad. It helps us, it harms us, and that's just the way it is. But we can control our reactions to it, our expectations regard, in regard to it. So it's a set of practices. That's important too, Brandon, that for most of the ancient philosophies, including Aristotle and Plato, Philosophy was not just a theoretical system, it was a manner of life. It was meant to produce eudaimonia, ultimately happiness. And so I think that appeals to people too. Um, as you say correctly, and look at the bookstores, the shelves and shelves of self-help books. How do I find peace or joy or happiness? And the Stoics have that quality of like, here's certain disciplines and practices you can follow. And they have a lot to do with, and here's one of our points of contact with Christianity, they have a lot to do with detachment, a detachment of our emotions and expectations from uh, the world. And again, there's a point of demarcation and a point of contact there with the classical um, Christian writers. Here's one more suggestion of why Stoicism is, is experiencing this resurgence now. There, in the late 20th century especially, was a rising interest in virtue ethics. And I want you to define what that is. But virtue ethics popularized uh, in recent times by philosophers like Alistair McIntyre and Martha Nossbaum. They've, they've made virtue ethics a, uh, a, uh, a theory that's an, an, an alternative to the dominant systems promoted by Kant or utilitarian and consequentialist philosophers. This is kind of heady stuff, but I do think it gets it to the heart of why Stoicism is popular today. Talk a little bit about the ethical moral framework that Stoicism brings into, into the bear. Yeah, I like that revival. Uh, I very much resonate with people like Alistair McIntyre. And also, I would say, my great hero, St. Thomas Aquinas, was a virtue ethician, if you want. Um, what are the practices and habits that make possible the attainment of certain goods? I and mean, that's a way to, to construe a virtue framework. It goes back to Aristotle. If I identify certain ends that, that will fulfill my deepest desires, okay, how do I get there? Well, I have to battle to some degree against false inclinations in myself. Now, we would say, as Christians, you know, we're fallen. Aristotle wouldn't have used that language, but he knew that there are competing inclinations, some in favor of, of that good, others that run against it. And so the virtues are, are uh, habits of the soul that are produced by certain repetitious behavior. Right? So if you behave in a certain way, in a patterned way, it'll produce in you a habitus, a habit, in the direction of certain goods. Well, those are the virtues. And so it's a way of talking about or thinking about the ethical life. How do you cultivate these habits that will make the attainment of the good uh, possible. 
And the Stoics, yes, are in that tradition, if you want. Uh, the good in question would be this, you know, eudaimonia, this, this sort of sense of balance and harmony with the world. How do you find it? You find it through a set of practices and certain disciplines. Now we get into people, go back to Marcus Aurelius, and on purpose I'm going to sleep outside the cold, and on purpose I'm going to take, you know, the cold shower, and on purpose I'm going to put myself in difficult situations so as to hold off inclinations that are going to lead to attachment. Um, the Stoics talk too, interestingly, and, and there's a point of contact with Christianity here too, contemplating your own death, for example, to cultivate a detachment from what frightens us the most. Don't run away from that. Think about it, maybe even every day. Well, for somewhat different reasons, Christian monks have recommended that too, is imagine your own death. Have a, a skull on your desk, for example. But there's something of the Stoic... Um, detachment from fear and expectation in putting yourself in the most difficult situations. That's a type of um, habituation toward virtue. What I find interesting in the early church is how readily they embraced many forms and elements of Stoicism. We read about St. Paul interacting with Stoic philosophers in the book of Acts, and then you have many of the early church fathers um, recommending Stoic practices, quoting Stoic philosophers. I'm thinking especially of St. Ambrose, who uh, wrote about Stoicism very often, Marcus uh, Minucius Felix, and then Tertullian also was a, a somewhat big fan of, of Stoicism. Talk about the early church's ability to appropriate pagan philosophy and find points of contact. They didn't just see a, a philosophy like Stoicism and say, nope, you know, it's bad, it's non-Christian, we don't want to have anything to do with it, it's all, we're all rejecting all of it. They, they always found the good, even in competing worldviews. The great image there from the Church Fathers is when the Israelites leave Egypt after their captivity. They, um, they take the spoils of the Egyptians, right? They, they go and they take what's best in Egypt. It's kind of an aggressive image, but they use that to say, we can move into cultures other than our own and take what's best in them and appropriate that to our own purposes. Um, so that's what happened with Stoicism, is we took elements of it and we said, okay, we're not going to buy the whole program, but we, we find these moves or these um, uh, recommendations uh, agreeable to a Christian framework. All right, let's spend the rest of the episode talking about some of these points of contact, some areas where Stoics and Christians can agree. So perhaps the fundamental premise of Stoicism is that you can't control the world around you, but only the way you respond to it. Here's a quote from Seneca, one of the famous Stoic philosophers. He says, the happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to its circumstances. The happy man allows reason to fix the value of every condition of existence. Is this how Christians would view the world too? Is it similar or is it different? It's both and, right? So, you know, Jean-Pierre de Caussade um, argued, and it's the one point he made, one of, the, one of the most, I think, interesting spiritual writers, but made one point over and over again. Namely, whatever happens, whatever exists, is in one sense or another the will of God. Either actively, God is actively desiring this, or at the very least, God is permitting it. Now, that's the ground, if you want, for something like a stoic acceptance of things. When you go through your day and say, okay, whatever happens to me is in some sense the will of God. 
And my goal, indeed, is to align my mind and will to the mind and will of God. Now, here's a point of demarcation, though, I would say, and it hinges upon that um, active versus permissive distinction. Are some things willed by God permissively so that we might fight against them? <laughs> that God allows certain things to be, not because they're, they're good in themselves or we just kind of have to roll with it and accept it, but rather God might be inviting us to engage in, in combat against it. That our own um, virtue will be increased precisely by our struggle against certain evils. Or, or do, here's a little spin on it. Um, a line I've always loved from Jose Maria uh, Escrivá is instead of saying, boy, that person is annoying me, say, huh, that person's sanctifying me. Now, there's something of the Stoic in that. <laughs> Namely, you know, okay, I'm not, I'm not trying to change the world, but I'm changing my attitude toward the world. Instead of seeing this person as I'm just a jerk and why is that person bothering me, no, I'm seeing that person as an opportunity now to grow in grace. But now, press it a little bit. Um, you're Edith Stein in the Germany of the 1930s and 40s. Do you just simply say, oh, Nazism, you know, that's the way it is, and obviously God wants that, and I just have to adjust my expectations and, you know, relax and not... No, no, it might be, here's something God has permitted. God's permitted this, but God wants us to, to struggle against it. It's not simply to be accepted in a, in a passive way, but accepted as an opportunity for growth and virtue or, or spiritual combat. So it's a detachment, but not quite in the Stoic manner. And see, Brandon, it hinges finally on your view of God. Is God sort of dumbly out there as just sort of the logos principle that runs through all things or the active you know, energy behind all matter? Or is God a person who is actively and permissively willing certain things and wants a relationship with us and is awakening response in us? The personality, the personhood of God, I think is a key point of demarcation between the two systems. You hit on something that is often offered as a criticism of Stoicism, which is their passive indifference toward injustice or to thing, you know, things like poverty or people that are suffering. Um, they kind of just shrug their shoulders and say, well, you know, it is what it is, and they just need to learn how to accept it. But Christians not just work toward writing injustices, writing wrongs, but there's also the element of prayer where we're, we beg God to change things, yeah. to make things different than they are. So I think, like you said, the both and of, yeah, we, you know, we learn how to respond to the givenness of reality and accept it in a way because it's part of the permissive or active will of God. But we also recognize the world isn't as it ought to be and yeah. God's made us agents to help change it. Well, you know, I'll say something too, Brandon, about detachment because that's a, a word that the two systems have in common. What's Christian detachment? It's a detachment from any created thing or state of affairs that I have made central or absolute in my life. So, as I've often said, whether it's, it's pleasure, it's money, it's power, it's my family, it's, it's whatever it is in the created order that I have said is absolutely central, I need to be detached from that. And, and then this good kind of stoic language of apatheia, to use the Greek term, 
it doesn't mean apathy, but, but a detachment of one's feeling. I indifference, we call it in the West, you know. Now, look at the gospel under that rubric. Uh, oh Lord, I'll, I'll follow you, but first let me bury my father. You think, well, I mean, of course, of course. Let the dead bury their dead, says the Lord. Is he against fathers or families? No. But what he's saying, the, the one thing that matters, the unum necessarium, is following the will of God. And even something as, as high a value as your family has to take second place to that. So there is a good sense of Christian detachment from anything in the created order. Uh, but, as you suggest quite rightly, it should never conduce toward apathy in the, in the general sense of that term, the, the accepted sense of the term, like, oh, who cares, let it be. No, think of, you know, in your um, beloved Lord of the Rings, uh, the, the great heroes, I mean, they're, they're in a titanic struggle, and they're being summoned to heroic action against wickedness. So it's not simply, oh, you know, there it is, let it be, uh, let go. No, no, they're, they're being roused to action precisely by a God who's summoning them to that action, who's permitting wickedness to be sure. That's right, God permits it. So as to bring about a greater good, we say. The greater good here might be our own growth in, in virtue, our own spiritual attainment. So those are the, the cautions I would add. I, I like the rise of Stoicism as, as you brought it to my attention. It's good in some ways. But I, I would caution people too. A healthy Christianity is a much... We can take all that's really good in Stoicism, but we can also bring it to a, to a higher pitch. Another fundamental tenet of Stoicism, we've hinted at it a couple times already, is that the disciplining, not the evisceration, but the disciplining of your passions, your emotions, your desires, leads to happiness. Do we find echoes of that in our own Christian spiritual masters? Sure. Um, the emotions are good, but like all created things, they, they can't be absolutized. When reason determines, here's the proper end, well then I, I need to order my passions toward the attainment of that end. So do you want to unleash your passions in the direction of what's good? Yeah, yeah. Be passionate about whatever your, your cause happens to be, if it's a good one. But if your passions are militating against the good, you've got to discipline them. Now we think of a classic virtue like temperance, right? And courage. So courage is disciplining my passions against an external threat. Temperance is disciplining my passions against an internal threat, right? Something in me is saying, don't do the good. I need to discipline that. Courage, something from the outside is saying, don't do the good. I need to discipline that. So, yeah, and I like all those practices of sometimes exposing yourself to a difficult situation. You know, we do it, Brandon, with, with kids all the time, even something like uh, sports. Uh, there's a lot of good things about that, but part of it is to inculcate uh, temperance and courage, isn't it? You know, that you're, you're up against a, an external opponent. You're there to help your team win, and even though it's, it's kind of dangerous, and even the people in the stands watching, <laughs> I've got to expose my, my, my skills to this crowd. I've got to face that. I, I've got my own interior hesitations. I have to conquer those, right? So sports are a way of training us toward uh, virtue. So I, I like all that side of the Stoic sort of moral program, but keep it connected to a personal God who is desirous of friendship with us. 
it's not just a kind of acceptance of the order of the world as it is. In You know, a very good example, Brandon, of a, not contemporary, but a more modern Stoic is Spinoza, the philosopher. Um, Deus sive natura, he said. God or nature, they mean the same thing. And nature is just there. Natura naturans, he said. Nature is naturing. Nature is just doing its thing. And our job is to just get in line with it, get in tune with it, you know, accept its rhythm, stop fighting it, stop expecting something else. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I get the, the, the stoic principles undergirding that, but I, I'm much more with Tolkien, you know? It's not like a, just a bland acceptance of it. It's disciplining myself to engage fully the will of God. Now see, that's more fun. That's more of an adventure. All right, let's close with this, Bishop. I'm gonna set up an imaginative scenario. Suppose that a young, tech-savvy, Silicon Valley guy comes to you. He's been reading books by Ryan Holiday with this modern stoicism. Maybe he's exploring Marcus Aurelius's meditations or Seneca's reflections on death. He comes to you and says, hey, I'm excited about all of this. What do you recommend to him? If Stoicism might be a stepping stone on the path to Christianity, what's the next step you'd recommend to him? I'd recommend uh, maybe the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola, which have a lot of the Stoic um, sense of detachment. I might recommend St. John of the Cross and his writings, um, which include a lot of what's best in Stoicism. Uh, I'd recommend the Church Fathers, who talk a lot about detachment and attachment. Um, I think all those will be ways of appropriating what's best in Stoicism, but also moving it to a higher pitch and a higher plane. Well, it's time now for our question from one of our listeners. We always take one on every episode, and we'd love to hear yours. So send it in to us by visiting askbishopbaron.com. That's where you can record your question, and we might air it on a future episode. Today we're hearing from Andrew, who lives in Little Rock, Arkansas, and he's asking about the word holy and how it relates to God. Here's Andrew's question. Hello, Bishop Barron. I am Andrew from Little Rock, Arkansas. In your show, you've said that the word holy means to be set aside for a particular purpose. So in the Mass, we say, you are indeed holy, O Lord. What exactly does this mean when we say that God himself is holy? It means that God is other, and that means other than anything that's in the world, uh, other than any of the um, finite things around us. And that's a very important move to make uh, philosophically, first of all, because um, many points of view in philosophies and religions will say that God is the greatest thing among things. He's the highest type of being. And, and our tradition would say, no, God is, is totaliter aliter, to use the Latin, he's totally other not a thing among things, not a being among beings, but the very source and ground of the existence of the world. And that's the holiness of God, um, that God is awesome, that God awakens in us a sense of sublimity and wonder. All that is correlate to God's um, holiness. Now, you said correctly earlier, when we make something holy here below, we're setting it apart, making it separate, but for the sake of serving God. So we're not like separating God out when we say he's holy. We're saying by his very nature, he's other than the world and deserves therefore our worship 
and not just our admiration or our, our interest the way any good in the world would. God awakens properly our worship, which is the proper correlate of holiness. Well, thanks so much, Andrew, for the question. And thanks to you for watching this episode of the Word on Fire show filmed in the new Word on Fire show studio. Uh, a couple of final things. One, if you want to go deeper in the relationship between Stoicism and Christianity, a good book to begin is titled The Porch and the Cross, Ancient Stoic Wisdom for Modern Christian Living. It's by Dr. Kevin Vost, a good Catholic Thomistic scholar, but it also features an introduction from our own Jared Zimmerer, the director of the Word on Fire Institute. So check that book out. It's titled The Porch and the Cross. Also, we're just about a week and a half away here from Lent, and we'd like to help you have an amazing Lent, not just yourself, but your whole parish. And that's why we've decided to give away for free during Lent our Word on Fire Engage program. I won't get into all the details here, but to put it simply, the Engage program and platform is a simple way to evangelize people in your pews and even the people who don't come to church. So you can find out more at wordonfireshow.com slash engage. You can sign up there. Again, it's free during Lent. Uh, so check that out and learn more at wordonfireshow.com slash engage. Well, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show. Yeah.